since uh, the start of the school year, and we're now just completing chapter three, and we're going to pause for the next five weeks uh, to do a series on our creaturely identity and cultural confusion, dealing with issues of abortion, homosexuality, transgender, as they interface with the church, as we answer the world, dealing with that, and then, God willing, we'll return to our study of Ephesians, beginning the second half of the book. This morning, we'll take our third look at Paul's prayer, closing this section. And again, Ephesians neatly divides in half with the first three chapters primarily focusing on doctrine, and the last three chapters on duty, with the, with the verb mood being indicatives, things that are in the first half, and imperatives, commands in the second half. Or you can think of it as orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And this, this closing prayer and this doxology mark a bridge connecting the two halves, closing out the one, beginning the other. So I'd like to begin by reading Paul's prayer and his doxology. I'll be looking at this morning and having a word of prayer and we'll dive in. We'll begin in Ephesians 3 verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Oh, Lord God, um, we, we too pray that you would strengthen us with power by your spirit to our inner man that you might um, cause Christ to more fully dwell in our hearts through faith, that consequently we would be rooted and grounded in love, that this temple that you are building in your people would be on that firm footing of your eternal love for your children, and that from that vantage point you might enable us to, to have strength together to more fully comprehend, to know, to understand, to take hold of your limitless love for us in Christ. And that consequently, we might be filled with the fullness of God. And Lord, we, we pray that you would do this not simply for our good and our benefit and our joy, but ultimately, Lord, that you might be glorified in your church and in your people. And just in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So I will remind you where we've been in our previous two weeks thinking through Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer, I give you the sort of the outline to it. He sets it up, and the entire chapter 3 is the setup and the execution of the prayer. He begins verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, and then he digresses, uh, more fully explaining the reason. And ultimately the reason is everything God has done for us in Christ, most specifically and most recently in this book, the fact that he has taken Jew and Gentile. He's taken these disparate people and he has 
united them and made one new man in Christ. And together, if you see the end of chapter 2, verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we'll review a little later all that God has done so far in Ephesians, but most recently he's taken these disparate people, And he's fashioned them into a new man. He's removed the dividing wall of hostility. And then the metaphor shifts from a new man to a a building, a structure, a dwelling place, a temple for God. And Paul then begins verse 14, for this reason, including all that's come before. But I think he's picking up in particular that building metaphor. And he has three petitions, three requests that he's making. The first is that God would give us something. Specifically, in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant or gift you to be strengthened with power. And then verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the first is this gift, that by his spirit, he would give us power. And power is going to be a big theme that shows up in our doxology. It's been a big theme in these first three chapters. But that here's more power granted to us that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And the notion there's more fully being at home, it links in with that temple being built. As the temple is more and more built, it's more fully constructed. There's more area for him to take up in residence as new wings and new steeples and new um, rooms are constructed in this temple. There's, There's more place for him to take up fuller residence And then his second petition is that being in verse, uh, the end of verse 17, that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength. So first that God would give you power. Now that as a result of that gift, we would be able, that we would have the strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. I'm summarizing. So, So get the order. First, we need power for Christ to take up full residence We need to be rooted and grounded on the foundation of his love for us. Then we need power to understand more fully the love of Christ for us. And we talked last week about how that is really crucial in bridging to the second half of the book. That how we're to obey, how we're to to live out our lives of faith is just as important as that we do it. It's entirely possible to pursue the Christian life in a legalistic, fleshly, human strength way. That's what the Pharisees did. There's a reason chapter 4 isn't chapter 1. There's a reason why Paul has to lay this foundation of teaching and bring it together in this prayer. And it's because he wants us only from this position to pursue obedience. And we saw that last week, that our seeing and being filled with the love of God in Christ is the basis for then our going out and loving each other. It's the overflow of our hearts. And it's imperative we don't skip over that step. So often Christian books on a better marriage or better work environment just start with tips and practical helps that would work just as well for a Muslim and a Mormon or an atheist. 
And Paul has a a distinctively Christian approach to these things because only from this position are we able to go out and love one another, serve one another. Can husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Well, now we get to the motive of all of this. And, and, and wanting better marriages, wanting better homes, wanting better families, wanting better work environments, wanting better relationships are good things, but they cannot be the ultimate end. Even as Paul prays for all these things, that we would be filled with the fullness of God, there's an ultimate goal, and that goal is God's glory, praying for the glory of God. And so he closes with the doxology. We, we're seeing the, the model of how we're to enter into the second half of the book. Another way of saying that is you're not going to be able to obey the imperatives in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 unless you're not first saved, trusting in Christ by faith, predestined from the foundation of the world. If you're not then filled with and Christ taking it fuller residence in your hearts, if you're not seeing more and more wrapping your head around the love of God in Christ for you, and ultimately that we're doing all this for his glory, That's the model we're moving into the imperatives of chapter 4, 5, and 6. That's what stops it from just becoming legalism and works and human effort. And we need to make effort, no doubt. But we make effort as people filled with the fullness of God. We make effort as people captivated by the glory of God and the love of God. So let's let's take a look at this closing doxology. To him be glory. To him be glory. Glory, And then the doxology is rather brief. There's an address, the to, and the what. The to him is the address. And the blank here, who is powerful. Now, now, language of power has been echoing through these three chapters. Let me just show you some of it. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 17, his first prayer. His prayer is similar, it's different, but similar to the prayer here. Um, We'll start in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Remember that second petition was that we might have strength to know and comprehend. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And then three things. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? And here's the third one. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So there's, there's power. And then he's going to talk some more about it in verse 20. And towards us, we believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so he frames Christ's resurrection, Christ's exaltation and triumphing over all the forces of this world and of any other world, heavenly places, as an ex- a, uh, a demonstration of God's might and power. And of course, the prayer at the beginning of chapter 3. Verse um, 16, what was the first petition? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. So power has been running through this. And one of the critical points to get is that you and I, if we're to be faithful, need God's power, first and foremost. We need his strength. And so Paul is addressing his prayer to one who is supremely powerful. This is meant to encourage us. You know, sometimes you can ask things from people that they simply cannot do. 
Your children ask you things. And, you know, sorry, we can't do that. I can't do that. But even as Paul boldly prays for power in verse 16 of chapter 3, we now are reminded that the one to whom Paul is saying, Oh, Lord God, give them power, give them strength by your spirit, is one who is supremely powerful. That the request he's making is completely fitting and completely possible to the one to whom he makes the request. To him who is powerful, and we get the extent and we get the proportions of God's power. And here's the amazing thing. So up until this point, get this, he's been bold. We talked about how the power he's asking for is not a small amount. If you look back in 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. And so we talked about the difference of giving from your riches and according to your riches. If, if Bill Gates gives $100 to a charity, he gives it from his riches. But if Bill Gates gives according to his riches to a charity, now he's giving in far greater proportion So what does it mean for God to give us power according to, in keeping with, consistent with the riches of his glory? It's a lot of power. And you may think, and I may think, wow, that's kind of bold. That's that's an awful lot. And what we learn is he, he hasn't really asked for anything yet, that you ain't seen nothing yet is basically the idea here. Because how powerful is God? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's, that's, a, that's powerful. So we get the extent far more abundantly than all we ask or even all we think. So let's, let's think through that. What Paul is insisting on is the request he's made. And, and, and I want to make this point clear because we're tempted, I think, at times to think that this is hyperbole. This is speaking over the top. And Paul wants us to grasp that the prayer he has made, the request he has he's petitioned God for, is not hyperbolic. It's not overstatement. If anything, it's understatement. Because what he insists is God is powerful, abundantly powerful, far more powerful than anything he has or could ask. Think about that. God is more powerful than anything you or I could ask. Which then, of course, means anything Paul has asked doesn't even scratch potential of God's power. It doesn't even, it's not as though, well, here's God's power and here's Paul's request and it's really close. No, God is far, let me, let me give you the way you could literally translate this. One of my commentators, um, Horner, says this. It could be literally translated, this phrase, to the one who is able to do beyond everything very far in excess of what we ask or think. So, so Paul's prayer is not Christian platitudes, Paul's prayer is not Christian hyperbole. He, he wants us to get that this is entirely possible. That, that Christ dwelling more fully in your hearts is entirely possible. God is fully able to do that. That you and I more fully grasping and knowing the unknowable love of Christ is a real possibility. God is able to do more than we can ask. Paul is not being excessively bold here. God can do far more than anything he said so far. So so take comfort in that. Be encouraged. But also then know then the only thing holding us back is not God's inability, but our inability, our lack of desire and motivation. God is supremely powerful to do beyond all that we can ask, and even beyond that, all that we can even think. Paul wants us to get, the limit is not God's power. If you can ask it, he can do abundantly far more than that. If you can even think it, 
He can do abundantly more than that. God is supremely powerful. Let me just give you a few examples in the Bible of this truth being declared. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for you, the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you. And about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Remember, Abram's told Sarah will have a son. He, he laughs. Is anything too hard for God? We're dealing with a God who spoke the universe into existence. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So guess what? Whatever difficulties you have in your life, they're not too hard for God. Whatever struggles with sin you have in your life, they're not too hard for God. And more practically... Whatever commands Paul has in the second half of this book, they're not too hard for God to enable you to do. So when Paul says in chapter 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, God enabling you and I to do that, it's not too hard for him. When Paul says in chapter 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, that's not too hard for God either. The weak link in the chain will be us and our desire to avail ourselves of God's might. Um, So Paul insists God is supremely and abundantly powerful. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through 9, talking the same notion of even, even more than we can imagine or think. He writes this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Our our requests are too small, they're not too great. Or they're of the wrong sort, because this is, again, directing what the requests are for. Paul's request, he's this bold because he knows he's asking things for God's glory. So he's not asking for the Humvee for his own enjoyment. He's asking for Christ to be more fully formed in them. He's asking they might be filled with the knowledge of God's love. And he's asking that all that would be for God's glory. And from that vantage point, with that goal in mind, he is very bold and he insists that what he's asking is nothing in comparison to what God can do. What God can do exceeds anything he could ask, anything he could think of. That's the one to whom we're praying. And I'd encourage you to follow Paul's pattern. Be bold and confident in prayer. God is supremely able to do the things we ask. Nothing is too hard for him. And then we get the proportions, the extent of God's power, beyond anything you could ask, anything you could think. But he wants to remind us that this power is already at work. It's not as though God's power isn't at work and we're asking him to start working powerfully. Rather, according to the power at work within us. The power at work within us. Proportion, according to the power that is already at work within us. And what does he mean? Well, I think he means all the things he's already declared. I mean, go back to chapter 1. Let me just give you a highlight of some of the working of God's power in your and my life. Even as we ask God to work, we need to be reminded he is at work. Paul's opening benediction, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have, 
present tense, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. God's power is at work in your redemption, in your forgiveness. God's power is in the spirit whom he has given to us. Jump to uh, verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's God at work. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's more working of God. It was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or go to chapter 2. The first contrast, we were dead, we were enslaved, we were following the course of this world. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is the type of power Paul's talking about. It's already at work within us. And again, if you're discouraged thinking, God, God can't do this. I've been struggling with this for too long. or This is too difficult. My situation is too hard. God can do anything he wants to do. He can do far more than you or I can think or ask. And God has already done amazingly powerful things in your and my life. According to the power that's at work within us, God's power has been at work within us. He made you alive. He spoke life into dead hearts. He resurrected you spiritually. Your, your, your stone heart was replaced with a heart of flesh. And he's fashioning and forming you into a new creation in Christ, prepared for good works. He's taken down the dividing wall. He's made us into one body. He's building us up into a temple. God's power is already at work. So as Paul makes this prayer, he reminds us of that in proportion. And just want to make two, two points here. The power that's at work within us is the same power Paul prayed we might know. And I think that helps explain the logic. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 19, his prayer was that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. So the flow of the thought is this. First, you need to understand God's power at work within you. I'm praying that you would know that. And then he proceeds to tell them that power. Then he prays for more power. Then he reminds us of the one who has already worked in us. So first we've got to understand it. Then we need to experience it. He's praying for more of it. This is the same power that Paul prayed we would know in chapter 1. That's why part of what I mean by saying power, God's power and his strength for us and in us has been dominating this whole section. First, you've got you to get a glimpse of this. I've got to show it to you. Let me show you how God's worked in you. He's praying for more of it. And now he reminds us in his closing doxology that even as he prays for more of it, it's already, God's power is already at work in us according to the power at work within us. Amazingly also, this is the same power that raised and exalted Christ. That's the point he makes at the end of chapter 1. The end of chapter 1, the last prayer that we would know is what is, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Well, there what he says in his introduction to this theme, I want you to understand the availability of power that God has directed towards you, and it's in keeping with it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, which is exactly the point he makes in chapter 2, 4, God's solution to our deadness problem is that he made us alive together with Christ. That same working of power in Christ is the same working of power in us. So 
he addresses his prayer to God who is powerful. He talks about the extent of God's power and the proportion of God's power already at work. And so this is, this is the power that's meant to give us the strength to do what he says in the rest of this book. This is the power necessary for us to walk in love. This is the power necessary for us to walk no longer as the Gentiles. This is the power necessary for us to put on Christ more fully. This is the power necessary for us to walk in the Spirit, for wives to submit to their husbands, for husbands to love their wives, for children to obey their parents, for slaves to serve their masters. This is the power to put on the armor of God. This is, this is what's going to fuel the rest of the book. And this is why the first three chapters come first. So what? That's the who. The address is to him who is supremely powerful. What? To him be glory. To him be glory. And again, we see this pattern of Christian um, sanctification where we get the blessing and he gets the glory. We get acted upon. We get chosen. We get loved. We get predestined. We get an inheritance. We get the spirit. We get redemption. We get raised. We get made alive. We get exalted. We get seated. God gets glory. That's the pattern. God blesses us and he serves us and he gives us what we need and he gets the glory and we get the blessing. That's the pattern. To him be glory. And this, this, this really surprised me. He lists two places. First, location. Where, where, where should I expect God to get glory? And the two places are in Christ and in the church. Now, wouldn't you expect the order to be that and not what shows up here? But the ESV follows the Greek, and the priority, the first listed place for God receiving glory is, in fact, in the text, in the church and in Christ Jesus. Think of the tremendous privilege we have. You're blank here. In the church and in Christ Jesus, the tremendous privilege we have. And I think this fits again with what he said already. God has a plan. He sent his son to, to save his people, but that isn't the end in and of itself. In one sense, the forgiveness of our sins is, is a necessary step on the way to God's fullness of his plan. Our sin and God's anger at our sin gets in the way of him receiving us and drawing us near and, and working with and in us. And so Christ dies, and in his blood we have redemption, but that's not the end of God's plan. Paul hinted at it a little earlier in chapter 3. Look at um, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Oh, look. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things that, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God did this so that in and through the church he might reveal, make something known both to earthly authorities and rulers and heavenly authorities and rulers. God intends, um, here's your first blank, God intends to be glorified in his church. And so Paul incorporates that. He knows that God intends to be glorified in his church. And so he's saying, I'm praying these things precisely so that God would receive glory in his church. 
to him, and he gives God his powerful, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Which means you're in my applying these things, the reality of this prayer. And the logic is he's asking for these things so that God might be glorified in his church. Work that backwards. If these things aren't true about us, what's not happening? If you and I are not being rooted and grounded in love, if we're not being strengthened by his spirit into our inner man, if Christ isn't more fully dwelling in our hearts through faith, if we're not more fully grasping the love of God in Christ, what's not happening? God's not receiving the glory he intends to receive in his church. Right? Because he's saying, I'm asking for these things to the end that God would be receiving glory in his church and in Christ Jesus. That's how he closes his prayer. Which means then, your second blank, he is glorified in our sanctification. Now, yes, God is glorified in our justification. Let me, let, me unstru- let me unpack these sort of Christianese terms. The Bible can speak of our salvation in past, present, and future tense. And when the Bible speaks of our salvation in the past tense, it's focusing on what we can call justification or forgiveness or what Paul calls in chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. And so you and I, if we're in Christ, have been saved insofar as we have received forgiveness. We have received redemption. That's not what Paul is praying for here, however, is it? He's not praying, I bend my knee that God might save lost sheep. That's a great prayer to pray. It's just not what he's praying for here. He's praying for saints, right? That's what he says in verse 18, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is a prayer for people who are already receiving forgiveness. So he's talking about that present tense of salvation, our sanctification. He's talking about the way in which you and I become more and more like Jesus. And so Paul's prayers that Christ might take up fuller residence in his temple, in in his home as it's being constructed, that his people might get a bigger and bigger grasp of his love, as even as I've argued last week and this week, and all of that is to prepare us and set us up to obey the commands in the second half of the book, Paul sees the glory of God connected with that. God's glory and God being glorified in his church will happen as his church prepares itself this way and then obeys the commands that he lays out. So just moving to chapter 4, God will be glorified in his church when we, according to verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. With humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God will be glorified in his church as we do that this way. God will be glorified in his church when, look at verse four, chapter 4.12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. There's that construction project. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's going to be glorified in that. Verse 15, as we speak the truth in love and grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
and God's glory in the church will be seen as we, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles do. Or chapter 5, verse 2, as we walk in love as Christ loved us. And I can keep going through this. God will be glorified in 5.15 as we walk not as unwise but as wise. 5.8 as we walk as children of light. This is how God's going to receive glory in his church. So when you and I think about our growth as Christians, oftentimes we can think of it almost exclusively at our own level. I'll have a better life. I'll have more blessings. I'll have a better marriage. I'll have better behaved children. I'll have better relationships. I'll... And that's true. We get the blessing, but ultimately God's glory is, is tied to this project as well. And God is jealous for his glory and his people need to be as well. You're playing with sin, your apathy, not only will have negative effects in your life, but it robs God of his glory. And so Paul is closing out this prayer after praying for the Ephesian church, praying for all of us. And he's reminding us that we have this tremendous privilege. He, he places the priority of the church in front of Christ in this, in this passage. He's, God will receive glory in the church and in Christ. Now, you can be certain he's going to receive the fullness of his glory in Jesus Christ. The church, on the other hand, that's another matter. And that's where the second half of the book comes in. Okay, now, from this vantage point, do these things for your own joy, your own blessing, and also for God's glory. God intends to be glorified in his church. He is glorified in our sanctification. He's glorified in our sanctification as well. Let me give you one example. Turn to chapter 5. The world-watching husbands should learn something about Jesus. Here's one of the ways the church, Christians, can bring God glory. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Okay, so every husband in this room God intends to be glorified in the church, and one of the ways is as you imitate and model for the principalities, the rulers, the angels, what Christ's love for his church is like. See, it matters. The stakes are high for how seriously we take these things. And it also means you're not going to be able to love your wife as you ought to without some theology. You can't just start with five tips to love your wife. You can only be able to do this as you have grasped And as you have your head wrapped around Christ's love for his church, you need to actually have ecclesiology in place to really be a faithful husband to this command. If you don't don't have much knowledge of how Christ loves his church, what Christ did for his church, you're not going to be able to do this. Theology and application get joined here. But this is one of the ways God's going to receive glory in his church. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Finally, then, we get the duration. Another reason this matters is our actions here will echo through eternity. 
for all of eternity, for all generations, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for his people, his willing submission, humbling of himself, dying on behalf of his bride, will echo throughout eternity. We will be singing the praise of that great gift and service forever. His perfect obedience in his earthly life, God will receive glory. We'll be singing songs about that forever. We see the beginning of that in Revelation 5. He is worthy to open the scroll because by his blood he redeemed for God a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, right? So into eternity, we'll be echoing glory for God in Jesus Christ. In eternity as well, God will receive glory through his church. I just think about that. It's one of the amazing things that we, have a, we get a role to play, a, a part to play in matters of eternal consequence. You can't save your neighbor, but you can share the words of life by which God saves your neighbor, and you can have some part in their salvation. And events like that will echo through eternity forever. Consequently, our inattention and our distraction and our apathy, the silence of that will echo through eternity as well. Right? These things matter. You see how this is bridging the gap, connecting into this? Paul has made it clear. God can do the thing I'm asking. He is supremely powerful to do the thing I'm asking. He's happy to do the thing I'm asking. And you're um, embracing that. You're, you're acting in that. Is meant to bring him glory throughout all ages and all generations forever. The stakes are high. This matters Husbands, how you love your wives will echo into eternity. Wives, how you submit to and lean into that will echo for eternity. Children, how you obey your parents. Servants, how you obey your masters. And every other instruction in here, if we're faithful, will echo to the glory of God through all generations forever and ever. (laughs) That's, That's what Paul says. It's going to echo in a similar way that Christ's glory echoes. Now, he he's receives glory for different things. He's the Savior. He's the one who dies on behalf of his bride. But the faithfulness of his bride, only able to be done through God's power working in her. I mean, of course, this isn't us receiving glory because we worked really hard. We understand already this is only possible because God's strengthening us, because his spirit is empowering us, because his son is dwelling in us, because we're captivated by a vision for his love. But that we ultimately end up doing these things. Loving each other, speaking the truth in love, serving each other, ordering our households and our families the way he would have us is meant and designed to also bring God glory in his church. This this is the way Paul transitions from what God has done to what then he calls us to do and In five weeks, we'll return to this. I'll pause here. We'll stop here for now as we prepare for a time of communion. But just want to encourage you. God is supremely able to do these things. If you want to glorify God, if you want to serve God, ask him. Pray this prayer. He is supremely powerful to do what we ask above and beyond what we might even think. Um, let Let me... Say a word of prayer as we transition. Lord God, um, I just pray that you would help us to realize the tremendous privilege 
that we have, that our actions, our, our, our acts of love, our faithfulness ought to bring you glory. And as it does and when we do, it, it will echo throughout eternity as well. We need your power to enter our inner being. We need Christ in our hearts. We need to see again and again and again more fully your great love for us. We need to be filled with you so that Christ can dwell in us. And only then can we love and serve as Christ loved and served. We pray that you would give us a passion and a heart for this. Give us a zeal to pursue this. Let it not be something that we dabble with but the consuming passion of our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.